The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Alex Fitch and this is Resonance's weekly show about the world of comics. On today's show, continuing a month of episodes looking at comic book creators who collaborate together, we have a panel on Doctor Who comics which was recorded at Sci-Fi London, the London International Science Fiction and Fantastic Film Festival in spring 2013. And I'm very proud to have on the panel artist Adrian Salmon, writer Scott Gray, artist Mark Buckingham and writer Andrew Cartmel, who is also the script editor of the Sylvester McCoy is. So Andrew, Doctor Who first time around was cancelled in 1989. You'd been the script editor for three years and presumably also had written a certain amount of the words we heard coming out of people's mouths in terms of polishing the script. But then following uh, the cancellation of the series, you wrote a number of comics for Doctor Who magazine and then a trilogy of novels for Virgin Books. So even when you were, write, you were working on the TV show, did you have ambitions to actually be an author of Doctor Who as well? Yeah, I started working on the books early on. I was writing while I was actually in the office. It's a great And I always, uh, I was a great lover of comics, a great lover of Alan Moore. At that time, Roger was just coming out before that, did a bit of Halo Jones and a couple of things that would stop me. Both of them were So when I arrived on Doctor Who, I had sort of an Alan Moore view of things, a way to do science fiction and fantasy more, because he's just such a funny writer. So as a comics fan, did writing your first comic come easily to you in terms of writing for panels and page breakdowns? It's very interesting. People write comics scripts differently. But the first time I saw it, it was a panel and they had the dialogue and the action. But as soon as I wrapped my head around the kind of architecture, it became very easy because I've been comics all my life and I love it. I love the Harvey Kurtzman EC comics, mm. which are very, you know, there's a great, great forward to what goes into every panel. And uh, the same is true for the way Moore writes. He describes it all in every panel. Of course, it's different ways. In Marvel, Jack Kirby and Stanley, Jack would sort of discuss a story, then Jack Kirby would draw it, and then Stanley would have done it. There's many different ways of doing it. Often when writers and artists talk about comic book spin-offs from TV shows and things like that. They talk about the comic having like the $100 million budget that the TV show never had because you can describe anything on the page. But actually, your, um, your first comic, Fellow Travellers, is a very dark, intimate affair. Is it because those were the kind of stories you were telling anyway on TV, things like Ghostlight? I would like to start with a realistic environment. Especially on Doctor Who, where you did have a special effects. You like to have a nice familiar environment, like a lovely little house again, and then you build all the monsters. So I wanted more spooky to do that, to do a space story. And I have to say that uh, this, this is kind of easy because what I was originally going to do was a black and white story. Mm. And Arthur Ransom must have been a great choice to work with on your first trip because he really is great at kind of photorealistic uh, oh, imagery yeah, and horror. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you had Brigadier back in your next story and the Cybermen. Mm-hmm. 
it's wonderful black and white, it's just bizarre, beautiful, I like to tell people like that. So I do love black and white. Mm. Because different artists uh, bring their own strength to whatever strip you're writing for, did you write slightly differently for each artist you were getting, or did you not know that far in advance? Well, I would every time I work with somebody again, but the first time it's just the presence of the Yeah, so, so once you work with somebody on one project, you then know strengths and weaknesses. Mm. And uh, often there's a lot of communication with good artists that say, I can't possibly rely on that. I like to draw this right. I mean, Mike Collins, I suppose, is probably one of the most prolific of all the uh, Doctor Who artists. I don't know how many strips he'd done at this point, but I guess we now know him as someone who can draw anything, and so that must be a, a joy to work with. Yeah, I remember him very much. Yeah, First came the start of Evening's Empire. Yeah, this is very interesting. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> Models on this illustrator, as you can see, his, his technique is fantastic. However, it took him about three years, about three years later. I'm not going to do it. He delivered about three years, I'm going to The guy started drawing it, delivered some drawings, and then whatever happened happened. He's got a comment on the side. And um, so that was it. it, it we ran a few episodes and then it just stopped. And I thought, well, that's it, that's you know, completely bothered. But John never gave up. What he did was eventually, when Richard delivered all of them, he brought out this wonderful one shot comic. Mm. It was like a mini graphic novel in color. So John had three months to figure out as he said in the day. I thought, well, that's the next thing I did. And I, I suppose I'm most proud of this because it's the most old one thing I did. And I can put in that a lot of it. Then, as as we mentioned, uh, Ravens was your final strip for the magazine. Was it because you were moving on to the novels, or they were just looking for more writing? Very much. These guys all agree. It's an industry of patronage, and if you're Mm. So it was a case of John Freeman leaving Marvel, UK at the time. Uh-huh. So that's probably that to the conclusion. And then the, the writer who came on the strip immediately after you was Scott Gray, oh, uh, right. by a, a strange coincidence. Oh, so yes. Yeah, yeah, I did. Sorry. <laughs> uh, what was... Because I, I believe that you'd been working on New Zealand-based fanzines? Yes, yes. I'd done a... I'd done a a couple of stories I'd written and drawn a couple of short stories um, for the Time Space Visualizer which was a fantastic New Zealand because I kind of figured well okay I might as well just give it a shot and I always think this is good advice I think for anyone who wants to get into comics don't just send a script don't send a plot outline send a comic get someone if you can't draw find someone who can and do an actual comic and, and produce the thing yourself do it maybe an 8 page 10 page story and and get it, you know, get it drawn, get it inked, get it lettered, and put it in the post to, to, to an editor because an editor will get a, a script or, or a plot from someone and go, oh yeah, great, and they'll just stick it on the in pile or the out pile or, or whatever. There's a million other things they've got to do first. But if an editor in comics gets a comic, they'll read it. They will always read it. So that's the way to do it, and it's it's the way that you teach yourself how to do how to do comics anyway it's, it's not enough just to write a script you've got to see it being drawn you've got to mm. see the panels coming to life and working out 
you know, how many panels can you put on the page and how many, how many balloons can you fit in each panel. And there's a real, uh, it's, it's a real trial and error sort of way of, of, of learning. So that's what I did. I, I'd written and drawn a couple of Doctor Who stories for, for this New Zealand fanzine. I put them in, both of them in the post and sent them to John Freeman. He, he was very encouraging. He came back and I was amazed that he, he'd written that, but he wrote back after the first one and said that was, that was interesting. Uh, sent me something else and I sent him a second one. And he came back and said, um, yeah, I think you can write. I don't think you can draw very well, but I think you can write. <laughs> so do you want to, uh, do you, do you want to um, submit a script? So I submitted a script that was Memorial. Mm. And then I always remember this. I got a, I got a package back from him in the post, um, and it arrived on Christmas Eve. And I assumed it was another rejection, and it was actually a, a letter saying, really like Memorial, this is good. John Ridgway's going to draw it. And that was the best Christmas present I've ever had in my life. <laughs> it was just incredible. I just hit the roof. I was just bouncing mm. off the walls. I was so excited. And, uh, yeah, and I'll always remember going into the Marvel offices um, and meeting John and also Gary Russell, and they had the original art for a Memorial there. And, it was, and John Ridgway drew big art. It was ah. all just big blocks of cardboard. It was massive. Huh. And it was just the most exciting thing to actually see the... Yeah, you know, it was all fully lettered and it was all mm. it was all there, and that's how I saw it. It was just, I was a total, it was fanboy meltdown. Frankly, it was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it seems that Doctor Who has always been a franchise, certainly in the last two or three decades, that has been very welcoming to people who do kind of fan-based productions in order to yeah. welcome them into yeah. the fold. Yeah, I mean, who, who's working on the who's working on Doctor Who now that isn't a fan? Who isn't actually a Doctor <laughs> yeah, Who yeah. fan? Look, Stephen Moffat and, and Russell Davis. The two biggest Doctor Who fans on the planet, frankly, mm. and they're the guys you know who, who've been running it for, for the past sort of eight or nine years. I mean, it, it just it just tends to make people want to become professionals, I think, because yeah, there's there's just so much to it. It's such a documented TV show that you know there's so many in terms of the ins and outs, and they mm. interview everyone, and they they you know they look at every element of the production. So so people read Doctor Who magazine, they read the Doctor Who books, the making of books, and they think, yeah, I could do that. <coughs> Mm. Suddenly, it becomes it becomes a, a, a possibility. Mm. People get into TV because they were Doctor Who fans, people mm. like Mark Gatiss and, and the like. Yeah, um, and also, I mean, things like the comics have kept the show alive when uh, it hasn't been on air. And also, there seems to be very much a dialogue these days between things that have taken place in the comic strip, either complete lifts like the Lodger yeah. or little bits here and there that have yeah. been picked up by the TV show and incorporated. Yeah. I mean, I remember seeing, I think it was the Eighth Doctor wearing a fez in one panel in That's one of your strips, you know, so. <laughs> I think that was Gareth Roberts story, right, actually. Okay. But yes, he put it, I don't know if, I don't know if Stephen Moffat's ever read that one or not, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure Sylvester McCoy wore a fez, actually. Really? But, uh, okay. He, yeah, I think he tried one on. He tried one on yeah, in Silver Nemesis, didn't he? And then, I guess... As you were continuing to write the scripts on and off, the people who were publishing Doctor Who magazine decided to align the continuity of the comic with the Virgin novels that were being published at the same time. And I guess you'd already touched on that with your yeah. books, um, Andrew, but certainly very much with things like Memorial, you yeah. were kind of fitting the comics in between the novels. That was actually the story, um, the story which is the one where they, they sort of go to a parallel world with the Silurians, um, was actually a complete coincidence. Oh, right. There was a... a a virgin novel that had come out called Pure Blood, I think, um, which basically had the same idea. The Doctor travels into a parallel Earth where the, the you know events have changed, but and there are Silurians. And I remember that this almost got cancelled 
this very close game because Gary Russell had heard about this after he'd commissioned uh, the story and after I'd written a script or two he'd, he'd heard oh god they're going to do a novel we've got to cancel this and I, I basically talked him around <laughs> over dinner one night I just went no no it'll be great it'll be great it'll, it'll work we can still make it connect together but, uh, but this is what happens when you, when you do end up and I'm sure you know everyone, everyone here has to deal with this where you end up with you just end up with coming up with the same idea accidentally and it mm. can happen so easily and it's always a minefield it's happened again and again with the, the strip where we, we've come up with an idea thought this is great and then pow um, the, the, the news comes back from Cardiff I'm sorry but we're doing that next year or we're doing something really similar to it next year <laughs> you, you're going to have to think again mm. um, Johnny Morris it was just it was amazing he just he wrote story after story after story for the comic strip and we just kept having to say I'm sorry but we've just heard back that no, they're going to do that one. They're going to yeah. suddenly. Yeah. He was he was amazing. He was so in tune with what Stephen Moffat was planning, was and, and he never found the bug that was next to his. <laughs> <laughs> and then, I guess, as the nineties progressed, both the magazine, starting off, I guess, with the various annuals and things, and then uh, Doctor Who magazine itself decided to do comics with the older Doctors. Yeah. Um, was that something you enjoyed doing, or had you preferred being like one of the curators of the ongoing story of the Seventh Doctor? Yeah, I, t- I don't know. I was just happy to get work, to be honest. <laughs> to be to be perfectly honest, that's it, really. I was just like, you know, every time Gary would phone me up and I'd, I'd go, hooray, it's Gary, he's going to give me a job. And it was, that was just really nice. Um, I think, I think all, all things considered, while that was quite fun to sort of jump around like that, it was probably, it was probably, it kind of damaged the strip, I think, in a bit. I think people were more into the idea of an ongoing continuity. Mm. I think I would have preferred to have just stuck with Sylvester McCoy. Um, but, you know, I got to write a William Hartnell story, so mm. that was quite cool. <laughs> well, to, to put you on the spot, um, do you know, are Panini ever going to collect that mid-period where the comic bounced around between Doctors? Oh, I'm sure they will. Cool. I'm sure they will, yeah. It's, it's only a matter of time, yeah. really. Because if anything, I suppose it has broader appeal, you know, a, doc- a different Doctor per ten yeah, pages, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and it's um, and we did end up sort of having a linking device mm, between the them to, yeah. towards the end with the threshold. Yeah, I just thought, well, why not? Why, you know, it'd be quite sinister if, if there is actually this kind of off off screen villain that's mm. that's sort of manipulating the Doctor's history. Mm. So why not? And and we just kind of yeah seeded that through, and mm. almost nobody noticed because really, <laughs> no one, no one was expecting it. <laughs> nice, Patreon. That was great. <laughs> did a, Lee Sullivan did a lovely job on that, and he just loved. He loved. Uh, he, lo- he loves that period. You know, Lee Sullivan's just the biggest Doctor Who fan, and he loves the Pat Troughton years and and so on. That was fun, and I believe those aliens were actually um, sent in by a reader. There was a oh, there was no. a designer monster competition. <laughs> They'd never do that on TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, yes, the Vortexians. They were the, the the chap won the. They're really really, really nice design. So they, we thought, yeah, that'd be great for the strip. So mm. that was that was basically the prize. I think was was to uh, to have them in the comic strip. Uh, and this was this is the conclusion oh, to well, the I threshold know. saga where yeah. you killed Ace, you bastards. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say, Sophie Eldred has forgiven me. <laughs> She's been perfectly fine about it. But uh, yes, yes, we did kill Ace. It was it was it wasn't actually something we set out to do. It wasn't like I sat down at the typewriter and went, right right got to write a story. Ace dies. It was one of those things where we were basically planning the return of Sylvester McCoy and Ace in the comic strip. While, <laughs> so you did that by killing him? Yeah. <laughs> well, see, it was just one of those things where outside events, we've been checking along for years with mm. no, 
no outside event affecting yeah. us. No, no Doctor Who on television. We could do mm. what we like. So we went, okay, we'll do a bunch of multi-doctor stories with mm. past doctors, and then we'll come back and we'll have Sylvester again and Ace, and we'll, we'll, we'll have an, it'll be the big launch of a new exciting era of, of them. Mm. And then the TV movie happened, and we suddenly we were hearing all this information. They're filming in Canada. It's Paul McGann and all, all this stuff. Mm. Sylvester's got a new costume, and and we realised Ace wasn't in it mm. at all. And we realised she could well, have been on holiday. She could have been on holiday. She clearly wasn't going to be there at all. Ace, you know, Ace wasn't in. Ace wasn't part of the Doctor's life anymore. And we were, and I was in the middle of sort of writing the story and kind of going, mm. well, what, what do we do? You know. Mm. And we just thought, well, this would be a really powerful way of of kind of drawing a line really mm. between between the McCoy era and and the Paul McGann era because we realised we had the opportunity to carry on mm. with the new Doctor in the comic strip. And. Uh, and yeah, yeah, it just the story just kept evolving. I remember I was trying to get around it. I was saying, is that why like, you wrote this one under a pen name in case? The <laughs> <started coming? laughs> but uh, um, yeah, I was just. I remember. I remember thinking, well, you know, maybe Ace could get injured or, or something, mm. and she could be just put in a stasis tube or, mm. or something. And but then you then you've got the problem of, well, what does the doctor do? Surely the doctor then just spends all of his time trying to heal her. Mm. You know, he can't just go off and have adventures and just leave her lying in the TARDIS somewhere. Mm. It just, you know, he would have looked like a complete, you know, nasty man. Yeah. But um, so yeah, and it just kind of led to, to the idea of, of a really heavy, tragic kind of conclusion where the doctor is kind of outwitted by the villains. Mm. And I, we wanted to carry on with the threshold and use them in, a, you know, for, in further stories. And we thought this would be a really powerful way of, of absolutely cementing them as a really dangerous threat. Mm. The idea that right from the start, he's the master manipulator, but all the way through this story, they are pushing his buttons every mm. step of the way. And, and Ace dies as a consequence. Mm. Um, you know, he gets, ultimately, he, gets, he destroys them, but that's, mm. that takes place much later. Mm. But, um, mm. yeah... Yeah, and we knew ultimately we knew it wouldn't affect anything else. We knew that Ace would be alive in the books, that you know the audios were going to come in, and we knew that you know, mm. Seth Eldridge would be involved in those. It was only the comic strip yeah, where, yeah. where Ace was going to die, and you know we kind of figured, well, the comic strip is, belongs to us. We, we can do this. <laughs> we know Ace is going to be perfectly fine in all of the other um, you know story threads. So mm. so you know it didn't feel like we were closing the door in any way on the character. Mm. Mm. Moving on, our first appearance of Adrian Salmon Yay! Uh, in a sequel to a classic fourth Doctor story by um, Mick McMahon. I remember reading, I think, in the, the back matter of one of the graphic novels how you felt that it was very big shoes to fill. Oh, yeah. I, uh, it's funny, before I actually drew it, drew it um, I asked him if he'd mind me drawing it. <laughs> Not that he'd have any, you know, say yes or no, but it was just sort of a, you know... It was big shoes. I mean, we were just having fun. Because really, you're friends, really. aren't you? Yeah. Friends with Mike McMahon. Yeah. So it's, it, 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 was, um, it was just a bit of fun. I mean, because, you know, the original John Yard is such a classic. Mm. So, you know, we, you know, there's no way you can match that. But, you know, have some fun. That's what we did. Mm. It was worth, like Scott said, anyway. It was a job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was your path into drawing Doctor Who? Um... My path into drawing Doctor Who was the Cybermen. Um, I went to see Gary Russell and he, he liked the samples I showed him, but he said, oh, it's too radical for the readers for the lead strip. And so he, uh, he found me something else to do. Put me in touch with Alan Barnes, who already sent in a, uh, an origin story for the Cybermen, and uh, I did up a sample page for it. Mm. And, uh, 
Gary liked it and said, do you want to do it? I said, yeah, okay. So it was like one pager hmm. a month for 24 months or whatever it was. Yeah, it was great. And presumably the, the feedback from readers was enough to convince them to put you on the lead strip as well eventually. Oh, that came way after. I mean, I think it was target practice was when Gary... Uh, I thought uh, By Hook or By Crook was your first. I could no. be wrong. Oh, okay. No, I did. I, 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 I did. All oh, right. Yeah. John Pertwee's story. Ah. Yeah. Gareth Roberts wrote that. Yeah, Gareth wrote it. And, uh, okay. I can't even remember if it went in the magazine or whether it was in a special. I don't know why. I'm not oh, sure myself now. We can Google it, it later. It, it, <laughs> it sounds like something that would have gone on those specials. I think that's... I seem to recall, rather than the lead strip. But anyway, um, it was a, a Pertwee sort of countdown type thing. Mm. Not that I realised that at the time. It was just, uh, I just drew it. Uh, and then, yeah, I did... Um, was this the first one? Hooked by Crook. What do we do? Um, I think this is the first thing we did together, yeah. I was, think. Was it character God, assassin? We're, really, we're old. Uh, <laughs> no, was no character assassin before this? And then you... No, no, because character assassin, it's in colour by this point. It's still black and white. Oh, yeah, OK. So yeah. This, is, this comes Oh, yeah, so this, yeah, this is the one where you um, asked me to put a lot of detail in. All yeah, the sorry. God, um, sorry. <laughs> just so it wouldn't be quite as jarring, I think. Mm. Uh, but you became part of the rotating team of artists. Well, I mean, yeah. Yeah, uh, I've done a fair few of them the time. I mean, um, I'm not like I always think with the, the mainstream, you need a, a strong, realistic style anyway, as the, mm. as the backbone to it all the time. Uh, and then you can bring in some mm. more eclectic styles every so often, just for you know something different, really. Mm. Um, and you know, luckily, I've done quite a few, and we'll be doing another one soon. Cool. <laughs> Yeah, this was your fake regeneration. Yeah. Uh, which seemed, seemed a little bit precipitous. He'd only been the doctor for two years. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you know? a, lot of, a lot of people, I think, it worked really well because I think a lot of people assumed that we'd somehow, maybe some legal thing had happened and we'd just lost the rights to use <laughs> or, Paul McGann. Or, or Nick Griggs had threatened to beat you up. And Nick, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I think it was Gary Gillett's idea to... To, to use the Nick Briggs doctor. I remember I had come up with the idea of doing a fake regeneration and having Shade appear pretending to be the doctor and then, mm. and then spoiler alert, sorry if anyone hasn't read it. But, um, it was 15 years ago, I yeah, think they probably got right. over it. But, um, but yeah, and Gary suggested, oh, let's get Nick Briggs mm. to do it, who had, you know, he'd been the doctor in some audio stories, mm. done some fan audio stories, and he was kind of well known, he, he kind of already had a costume, and thought it was quite a good, had a good idea, quite a fun idea to have Nick suddenly show up as, as this new doctor. But uh, yeah, yeah, that was a laugh. We got, we got some angry letters at the time. Nice. Oh, oh yes. yes, and then the oh, sorry, yeah. one of the few appearances of Grace outside the TV. Yeah. was that was that a big deal to get the rights from Universal? It was, or it did was, you not tell them? I'm not sure we told them. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. It's it's been 14 years. Yeah, I don't think I don't think anyone cares now. Really. But yes, no, that was fun. That was that was really fun having having Grace appear. I think immediately, whenever you do something like that, which immediately properly ties in with the TV continuity. The fans kind of sit up and, and take more notice of it. They get a bit mm. more excited about it when characters from the TV show suddenly just appear out of nowhere mm. in the strip. And yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed writing the whole Grace Doctor thing because um, the Doctor was a bit of an idiot in this story, and Grace kind of uh, Grace kind of woke him up to, to he was he was yeah he was I can remember I can remember writing this at the time and thinking 
oh, the Doctor's being a real fool in this story. <laughs> and it was quite a breakthrough for me, the idea that mm. the Doctor could be an idiot. He could, be, he could get stuff wrong. Mm. And someone would have to kind of like slap him in the face and go, no, come on, you know, grow up. You know, you, you're handling this, you know, really badly. And, um, and uh, yeah, I've kind of stayed with that ever since. There's been quite a few scenes like that where, where someone will turn around to the Doctor and say, just grow up! <laughs> nice. Uh, and then here we have the first appearance of Croton, oh. the cuddly Cyberman. <laughs> this was uh, a, a strip that you wrote and drew yourself, but then I guess you, you asked Scott to help you expand it into a, a longer um, five pages or something? I, I didn't, I, there was no words on it initially. Right. Um, I just did, I think it was three pages, and I, I showed it to the, the guys at the office at a convention one time, and um, they called back and said, do you want to expand it into uh, a full episode and write it, which was like, uh, yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't know why my name's up there. I'm sure Adrian just wrote that. Well, no, it, 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 it says in the back matter of this yeah, book. No, Gary <laughs> got you to, to change a few things. Really? I'm Maybe it's like one or two captions. I'm sure you wrote it. I think you put Christmas in or whatever. And the, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. I changed one or two lines or something <laughs> in there. But it's, but it's, it's your story. It, it was sort of very, uh, very much, you know, a... Uh, I don't know. I'm not a writer, I, and I don't. I, I don't think I write dialogue, so it's it's. It was all sort of. It needed looking at. I love the story. I've got to say, I absolutely loved <laughs> the, the the you know when you brought this to us and and, and suddenly I didn't know who Croton was. I don't think I'd ever read any of the the, the backup stories, mm. and I love the idea of of, an, of a Cyberman that that had that had an emotional reaction to things. But more than that, he, he was an athlete. He could actually run and leap and jump. And I thought, mm. that's fantastic. That's yeah. just something I'd never seen before. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, yeah, I think, I think they're just about to do that on telly. I was just going to say, <laughs> I think next <laughs> week, just we're going to see a cyberman running. <laughs> and I looked at that, that photo and thought, oh, my God, it's Croton. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it was your idea to, to, turn, to turn a cyberman into a proper, proper sort of, you know, superhumanly powerful physical character rather than just someone who would just yeah. sort of tromp down as a corridor mm. I thought that was fantastic I loved Croton mm. we kept him didn't we we hang on to him yeah yeah he sort of he ended up a proper, proper companion and what is it about Cybermen <laughs> because you know you did that uh, ongoing strip and then you kind of brought Croton well, back it the, seems it like a particular wasn't really anything about Cybermen until I got offered the Cybermen okay and then I, I did that and I got into that and um I don't know. Everybody does ask me to draw Cybermen. You know, I still get... You are the Cybermen guy. People commission me or ask me, you know, can you do Cybermen for me or whatever and stuff. It's always Cybermen. Mm. Uh, I quite like drawing them. They're tailor-made for you. Well, exactly, they they are. are. They're sort of... They're kind of... I think it's because they sort of suit the the angular way I draw as well. Mm. Um, It's, you know, it's not... I'm not a naturalistic artist. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, I can sort of... I don't know, this... This suit sort of iconic imagery as well, you know. You think back and say Jack Kirby and, and mm. the type of work that he would do to really mm. sort of simplify and making things strong. Mm. Uh, they they kind of work, not so much when you get to the eighties ones, but <laughs> the, that was always a challenge, you know. Mm. But um, any of the early sixties stuff was uh, really yeah. good. Mm. Speaking of Neil Gaiman, who's about to reintroduce running Cybermen into the TV show. Mark, you got to draw the unfilmed scenes from his first TV episode. Yes. Could you um, tell us a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, um, uh, no, it was just one of those things where, where sort of Neil gave me a call and told me about the brilliant book, about this, this unfilmed sequence, mm. which was just one of those typical things that happened all the time where 
you know, you have that, that mix of, of running out of time with the shooting schedules and, and problems with, with, with budgets and stuff, so I can create another world mm. to show within the episode. So it was like, well, you know, this, this was kind of for, instead for the little cubes sequence on board the TARDIS, which was mm. the original opening to the Doctor's Wife. Uh, I mean, the, the film opening. And, um, and yet he, he, he'd be uh, given it to Brilliant Book of Doctor Who as a, as, as a piece to run in there to accompany the, the section on that episode. Mm. And um, no, it was great. I've been working with Tony Lee mm. for a little while on the um, IDW Doctor Who stuff. And I just reached that point where I'd gone from sort of straightforward um, in line art into doing everything in watercolour washes in great terms. Mm. And it just, it just felt like this, this three pages would be a great opportunity to just do an entire strip in that style and see how it worked. Mm. Because you've done two of Andy Diggle's scripts so far and all of the covers. Are you going to be coming back to do uh, more interior art? Um, I, I'm kind of talking to, to Denton at the moment about, about doing some more. Certainly, I, I'm continuing to be the, the cover artist on the ITW books. I think I've drawn about 30 <laughs> so far um, over the last three years. So that's, I, I, I love doing it. I mean, it, it's, it's an absolute joy um, drawing these characters. But it, it took me a long time to kind of want to draw who. Mm. Because the problem was that I've, I've been a sort of absolute devotee of, of, of who beyond anything else since my childhood. And, um, and I love sci-fi in general too. And the problem was that during the mid-90s I did some work for Marvel um, drawing their um, Star Trek comic with the original crew, Kirk mm. and Spock and And the problem is it was such a, a nightmare from the point of view of all the changes that were being asked for all the time and uh, just, you know, the struggle with, with sort of keeping Paramount happy with, with the licenses and stuff, that by the end of it, I dislike Star Trek so much that I couldn't watch an episode anymore. And I just had this absolute fear in my gut. If I ever drew Doctor Who, the same thing would happen with that, and I have nothing left to love. You know, it's kind of like, don't take that from me. And funny enough, what, what kind of changed it for me is I, I made a trip to San Diego Comic-Con, and I was on a flight coming back with Tony Lee, and one of the engines burst into flames, <laughs> and we flew for 15 minutes at an angle and landed at Mercy Lady in Kansas with fire trucks racing past us. And afterwards, I was sat in the cafe of the, um, the airport with Tony, and I said, OK, I think we're going to start from the Doctor Who. I don't know how much longer I've got. I'm not going to just go for it right now. So, oh, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I guess... One of the nice things about doing the comic is that you can continue the adventures of Rory and Amy even after they've left uh, the show for the time being. Well, yeah, and certainly, you know, it was nice to, um, to work with these, these characters. Um, but the funny thing is we originally had it in mind uh, for this first story arc to actually use Madame Vashra and Jenny ah. in this story. And then we, we were told that basically they're going to be coming back into the, the series. So, that, you know, so we go, OK, well, we're going to use Amy and Rory then. And hmm. um, we, we, you know, we've had Amy and Rory for, for eight issues of the current run. And now we're just at the point where we're bringing Clara into okay. the uh, into the comic. Uh, and here are a couple of your covers, one in your more traditional style on the left and on the right your more painterly style for an upcoming issue. What was it that prompted the move into the sort of watercolour look for the comic? 
Um, I think I was getting frustrated with wanting to have really clear likenesses, and the delicacy that I was getting using washes just allowed me to really play with lighting effects and the nuances of character in a way that I wasn't finding it easy to capture just with, with simple line work. I mean, the fairy tale one was an interesting kind of crossing point for me because I was working with Matt Sturgis, who worked with me on the, um, the Fables-related uh, books, and also, um, you know, we were dealing with, with Doctor in a sort of fairy tale world. So in many ways, this was a kind of like a crossover point between my, my regular work at DC and, and moving into the Doctor Who world. Mm. So, Andrew, bringing this whole thing full circle, as it were, you're currently working on a Doctor Who comic strip again. Uh, could you tell us a little about Fan Fiction Illustrated? Well, it's nice the success of War of War. I think I've pronounced that correctly. <laughs> it shows there's this great body of fan comics out there. And so this is a project we're trying to launch. Uh, there's a crazy, very nice Danish publisher called Hans Christian Bang, believe it or not. And... Uh, he approached me with this idea of doing this, and he's trying to get finance for it through some kind of crowdsourcing. And so I've written some scripts for him, and he's got some great artwork. And if it goes ahead, it'll be a lot of fun. So that's, that's sort of where we are now. Yeah, some nice work there. I mean, the the pre-publicity for this anthology, when it was being launched on, was it Kickstarter or Indiegogo? One of those. I think it's all of those. <laughs> um, was being advertised as the return of the Cartmel Master Plan. I mean, were there still stories that you had in your head regarding the Seventh Doctor? Yeah, there's an overall sweep of stories and characters that we wanted to use, and there's potential there. But it's, whether or not this actually happens is down to the of money. Okay. Whether the publisher raises stuff. Well, to maybe tempt the audience to put some money into it, here is some art that's been produced for some of the strips in the anthology. So it's going to be full colour and a variety of different art styles. Yeah, it's amazing. The artists are out there all over the world who are really to do these disguises just drawn together. So, yeah, it was fantastic. I haven't seen this before myself. Quite impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to thank Adrian, Scott, Mark, and Andrew. A variety of collections of Doctor Who comics by my guests on today's show are available now. Collections of Doctor Who magazine comics by Scott Gray and Adrian Salmon are available in all good bookshops. Mark Buckingham's comic strips for the American company IDW are available in various different collections. However, as IDW's license for Doctor Who runs out at the end of the year, these may prove to be in short supply in 2014, so it may be advisable to pick them up shortly. Although few of Andrew Cartmel's comics are yet to be collected, all of his Doctor Who audio plays are still in print. This weekend, the 23rd and 24th of November 2013, proves a real dilemma for people who are fans of both Doctor Who and comics, as there is a major 50th anniversary Doctor Who convention taking place at the Docklands in London. However, this is sold out, so if you haven't bought a ticket for that yet, then your only real option is to go to Thought Bubble, the Leeds International Comic Book Convention, taking place in and around the armories in Leeds. Guests include Jeff Darrow, Fabio Moon and Gabrielle Barr, Fiona Staples, 
Kelly Sue McCormack, Emma Rios, Ramon Perez, Matt Fraction and David Ayer, plus many more. Before the main festival, there is also a small press and underground comics conference taking place at Leeds Central Library, which looks at such issues as fanzines, the small press around the world, methods of production and distribution, and much more. For information about the Comics Forum and the main Thought Bubble Festival, please go to thoughtbubblefestival.com. If you're unable to make it to Leeds, however, some of the guests who are in the UK for Thought Bubble are doing signings at comic shops in London. These include a signing with a trio of image comic book creators, Brandon Graham, Fiona Staples and Eric Stevenson, at Gosh Comics on Friday, November the 22nd from 5pm, a signing by Fabio Moon and Gabriel Barr on Wednesday, November the 27th at Gosh, and American small press creator turned illustrator of Star Wars novellas for kids, Jeffrey Brown, will be in conversation with Mark Ellaby on November the 28th from 7.30pm until 9. Gosh Comics can be found at 1 Berwick Street, London, W1F0DR, and their website is goshlondon.com. Meanwhile, at Orbital Comics, 8 Great Newport Street, near Leicester Square Tube in London, there's the final week of their Fables exhibition, showcasing the art of Mark Buckingham on the popular long-running fantasy title. Their pre- and post-Thought Bubble events include a signing by Alice Cott and Tom Muller on November the 20th from 4pm, Sean Michael signing Punk Rock Jesus and The Wake on November the 22nd from 5pm, and Emma Rios signing Pretty Deadly on November the 26th, which heralds the start of an exhibition showcasing art from the comic. Orbital Comics can be found at orbitalcomics.com. Panel Borders was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch, is a Panel Borders production, and you can find all previous episodes, including a variety of Doctor Who-related podcasts, featuring interviews with the likes of Sylvester McCoy, Sophie Aldred, Michael Jaston, Pat Mills, Tony Lee, Leah Moore and John Rapian, and many others, at www.panelborders.wordpress.com. There's also a companion broadcast to today's episode, in which I'm looking at Doctor Who novels, and the show will include the other panel I did at Sci-Fi London, with authors Terence Dix, Paul Cornell, Tommy Dombavand, and Jenny Colgan, which will be broadcast on the 12th of December at 8pm. If you enjoyed today's show, or one of the, and any of the 500 plus podcasts available on my website, please consider donating a few pence to help with running costs of the show, such as batteries, train tickets, and review copies of books. Chris Gibson is the most recent person to kindly donate some funds to panel boarders, and you can find the tip jar on my website. And there'll be a new episode of Panel Borders at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. This program was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24-7 broadcasts. Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.